If you would stand with me now as I read today's sermon text, which is Colossians 3, verse 15. Colossians 3, 15. Beloved of the Lord, hear the very word of God. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, thankful this morning uh, to be gathered together as your people in your house, in your name. We have come to worship We have come to hear your word. We have come to partake of your sacraments. And we have come to fellowship with the saints. But at this time, we pray that through the power of your spirit, you would bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word. And you would, in fact, use it to transform our minds. That you would... Use it to change us, that you would use your word to form us into the image of your dear son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have a couple questions for you to start. I wonder, is your heart ever troubled? Is your heart ever troubled? Are you ever afraid? Is your heart ever troubled and are you ever afraid? We find trouble on every side. There are no lack of things to be afraid of. And yet the Lord has called us to something else. We read in John 14, Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Isn't this interesting? Seems like an important concept that Jesus would say, My peace I give to you. And therefore, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. As we think about this idea of peace, we surely think about the prince of peace. And if he has given us his peace, how does that happen? How does that transaction take place? 
I know we reviewed a lot of this the last time I was here, but I would like you to go ahead and, in your Bibles, turn to the beginning of the letter to the Colossians. Because we're going to hit some of the highlights, not that other portions are lowlights, but we're going to hit some of the highlights of this book leading up to the uh, verse we're looking at today. It is, it is interesting that, uh, almost without exception, Paul's letters begin with grace and peace unto you. This was a common greeting amongst the believers. It has its root amongst the Israelites, but we'll get to some of that later. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is reminding them that they have been given this grace and this peace as a gift. As we move down through this passage, I'll pick up again at verse 11. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. As we've said many times from this pulpit, we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Into the kingdom of His dear Son. Moving down to verse 16. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. Dropping down to 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. As the creator and sustainer of all things, those all things fell when Adam sinned. And yet it says here that they have all been reconciled back through the blood of the cross. That the warfare that began between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent has now been overshadowed by peace. Peace has come. It's that old trick they used to use in the movies. Remember when it was black and white and it was all dark and scary? 
and then it would, the color would come across the screen and the sun would come out, right? That's, that's the image that we have here. Let's move over to chapter 2, verse 6. And you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principalities and powers." In him, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in it. a lot. It's amazing. He has triumphed over the principalities and powers. Those powers of darkness. Brothers and sisters, we do not fight towards victory. We fight in victory. Amen? Let's go over to uh, chapter 3 at verse 1. It says... Talking to you now, it says, if you were raised with Christ, if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And we talked about this some last time. In verse 8, we see that we are to um, put off the old man. And there's a list of characteristics. So in, in, in verse 8, we are to put off these things. But in verse 12, we are to put on. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, Humility, meekness, long-suffering. And this is what we preached about last time. Forbearing with one another and forgiving one another. Do you remember that this 
This forbearing is actively forgiving people of their sins while they're taking place. Forgiving people is forgiving them after the sin has taken place and you're dealing with it later. It says, as you're forgiving others, as Christ forgave you, that you are to put on, in addition to the things listed above, you are to put on charity, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. This is the thing that binds us together. This love that we have one for another, like Christ loved us. We are to forgive one another like Christ forgave us. This is what holds this body together. This smoothing off of these living stones is what allows them to live together in harmony as a living temple. Right? These blocks fit perfectly together. But it's that love that binds us together. And then that leads us to the passage that we're looking at today. Which tells us, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The peace of God. Is this a concept that we think about a lot? That we live in the peace of God? That we possess the peace of God? That we have in our hearts the peace of God? I argue that it's not one we think about very often. We sometimes will haul it out at Christmas time, right? As we're singing the Christmas carols and the Christmas hymns. Or as we're reading through the, the, the story, maybe even the prophecies leading up to Jesus, right? In Isaiah 9, we read this For unto us a child is born, unto us a son of, is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So the prophecy here is that the Prince of Peace is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. And his government is going to be established. And within that government, there will be peace. And that with that peace, there will be no end. It is an eternal, everlasting peace. It cannot be done away with. This is a huge concept in the idea of the coming Messiah. You see, because when we think about the word peace, we think about it more from a human perspective, and we generally think it's an absence of warfare. It's an absence of conflict. And that's true. But it's not sufficient for us to understand the idea of peace from a biblical stance. Because this peace that we're talking about is an abundance 
It's not just the lack of something. That's true. It's a lack of conflict. But there is an abundance of health. There is an abundance of welfare. There is an abundance of prosperity. There is an abundance of every kind of good. Do we believe that? When we talk about being fruitful, that's an abundance, right? I mean, when you plant a grain of corn, if it comes up, we've learned in Tennessee that it's just not that easy. In Illinois, it just sprung up and was wonderful. In Tennessee, you actually have to do stuff to it after you plant it. But if it comes up, that one grain of corn turns into how many grains? Hundreds, right? It's an amazing increase. This peace that is established, that is brought into existence through the Prince of Peace and His government is what the Old Testament referred to as shalom. Everybody heard this term? Shalom? Everybody know what it means? It means peace, right? But it's much bigger. It's much deeper. It's much richer than the way we tend to approach peace. Shalom meant a a wholeness, a restoration, a soundness, prosperity. It included peace from war and strife. But one of the things we tend to miss is this shalom, this peace. There was a model that it was pointing to. When they talked about shalom, the definition included life in the garden before the fall. Where everything was provided for us. There was no strife. There was no sin. There was no warfare. There was no lack of any kind. There was no shame. There was no tears. So when we we come to this word peace in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writing, this is a word that they're using that is trying to communicate the ideas of shalom in the New Testament. They're bringing that forward. The section we read in John earlier Pretty amazing, right? You have the risen, reigning Messiah right there in front of him, right? What's the first thing he says? Peace to you, right? And then what's the next thing he says? Peace to you. And then he says it again, right? Three times he tells them, Shalom has come. This is the Messianic kingdom. We need to get in our heads this idea of what is going on. And I'm, I'm very guilty of this. As I was studying through this, I kept thinking, peace. Yeah, everybody understands peace. It's a, it's a lack of war, right? 
But no, I'm having to expand my understanding. Because, you know, Jesus told us um, in John 14, he says, not peace like the world could give you. This is only a peace that I could give you. See, because in the world we can do peace, right? But peace can be imposed upon you against your will. But in God's peace, in the Lord's peace, in shalom, this is a peace that is established by love, by sacrifice, by mutual love one to another, right? This is the Trinity working together in love for the good of God's people. This is the groom and the bride coming together in concord, right? In, in, in mutual love. Worldly peace is temporary at best. Keep track of the ceasefires over history. They don't last very long. Lord's peace is eternal. It has no end. The world's peace is limited in scope and reach. But the Lord's peace pervades time and space. It is a recreation. The world's peace is that absence of outward conflict. But the Lord's peace is outward and inward, but it's, it's serenity, right? It's, um, it's paradise, right? We don't like to use those kind of words, but it's really what we're talking about. We're talking about the garden before the fall. We can't even imagine it. How good must that have been? No weeds in the garden. Can I get an amen? The world's peace is partial and incomplete. But the Lord's peace, and we saw this in the passages that I read, the Lord's peace, this shalom affects all of creation. It affects you it affects the earth, it affects the cosmos, it affects the, the principalities and powers that we can't really see. That victory has brought peace. The Lord's victory on behalf of his people has brought peace. That's amazing. Paul has this real emphasis on peace in his writings. As a former Jew, it makes sense to me that he understood these messianic promises and that when the Messiah came, that surely there must be peace with that. In Colossians and Ephesians, there's a, there's a strong emphasis on peace. In Paul's letters in general, he mentions this peace, this shalom, 51 times. This is an important concept, Paul, that he's trying to communicate over and over again. Let me just give you sort of an outline of Ephesians and how he uses this, right? In Ephesians 1-2, he opens with the same greeting, right? Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends with peace. He signs off, peace be to the brethren and love with faith. So he brackets the entire letter in this concept of peace. 
And then in the second chapter, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off, are made near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain two one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. This passage is very similar to the one in Colossians. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, and to them that were near. And he brought them together, and he established peace amongst those people who were warring with each other. The Gentiles and the Jews, he brought them together and made them one peace. His his peace cemented them together, that bond of perfection we talked about earlier. It brought them together in a way, in an indissolvable bond. This is is not some peace agreement on paper written by man, right? That can be ignored and thrown away. If you would, turn to me to um, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is going to give us a little instruction here on how we walk, how we live as those who have been reconciled back to God the Father by the blood of Jesus Christ. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This is going to sound very similar to what we're supposed to put on over in Colossians. So you are to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This walk that we're called to is how we interact with one another. This is what the Christian walk looks like. Peace is supposed to be dominating our world, our thoughts. We prayed earlier that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind, which we're going we're to get to here a little bit. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes. But this idea of peace is, is so important to Paul. I mean, even in Ephesians 6, when he talks about the armor of God, right? It's that we have been prepared for and by the gospel of peace. He calls the good news the gospel of peace. 
this state of paradise in which we've been placed, this tranquil state, assures our soul of its salvation through Christ. We fear nothing. We are not to be troubled, but we are supposed to be overrun by peace. We are to be so overjoyed by the benefits, the blessings of salvation, of reconciliation, that it is going to spill over onto others. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. When we think about this state in which we've been placed, it can't help but motivate us to what? To sing, right? Which we're going to get to a little later, but I'm going to give you just a glimpse here. In Isaiah 26, as it's talking about the coming Messiah, right? It says this, In, in that day, in that day when the Messiah has come, this song will be sung. And here's how the song goes. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter. Psalm 118, right? Thou will keep him in perfect peace. Shalom. Whose mind is stayed on thee, who stayed on the Lord, because he trusts in the Lord. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for he is the Lord Jehovah, for the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. For he brings down them that dwell on high, the lofty city he layeth low, he layeth it low even to the ground, he bringeth it even to the dust, Psalm 118, right? God's providence on that was uh, kind of startling to me this morning. And then Paul in Philippians says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That word keep there is like a fortress around your heart. It is that insulator between you and the troubles, between you and the fears. But see, this, this peace of God is supposed to, the next word we come to in our passage is rule. The peace of God is to rule in our hearts. What does this word rule mean? It's talking about a government, right? Remember back in the passage in Isaiah, that of his government and peace there will be no end, right? So this rule is like an umpire in your life. 
And anytime you're facing a situation, there may be two ways to go. And what does the umpire do? He calls the play for you. He says, take the path of peace. Always take the path of peace. Let that peace govern your heart. Let that peace that you have with God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit, you overflowing in joy because of all of that, now allows you to interact with those who have been called with you. Do you see how this works? Let the peace of Christ be that deciding factor. How am I going to go today? How am I going to go in this moment? I'm going to choose peace. Now, I'm not talking about sacrificing principles, but I'm talking about how we relate to one another. How do we demonstrate the peace that God has secured for us as we're interacting with others. When people think of you, do they think, there goes a peacemaker. There goes a child of God. Is that how it goes? Let that peace of God rule in your heart. And we take this sort of precious moments view of our heart, right? Um, we've seen too many cartoons. We've got a red heart in us and it beats, right? And so in our minds, this peace of God would come and it would swell that heart a little bit, right? And maybe push your chest out a little bit, right? That's how we would portray it. But that's not what this word heart means. It means everything. It means everything about you. It means your desires, your feelings, your affections, your passions, your impulses. This is the very center of your being, being ruled by the peace of God. You are called to be a peacemaker. Been called as a child of God, you are called to be a peacemaker, which leads us to the last part of the verse, to which also you are called in one body. See, it's really interesting. There is this very definite individual calling on a Christian's life. It is, it is as individual as it absolutely can be. God calls you by name. And yet, he calls us together in the same way. He makes us one body. Many individuals, one body. Do you get that? You have been individually called by grace. You have been corporately called by grace. And as we are one body, the heart of that one body should beat according to the rule of the peace of God. What does that look like? It looks like what I, pat, I preached about last time. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. 
We live in love for one another, looking for those opportunities to extend peace to one another in forgiveness. That's what this is about. That's how we live together. That's how we don't kill each other. Or as Paul would say in one place, this is how we don't eat each other. Yeah, it's that bad sometimes that Paul had to warn, hey guys, don't eat each other. This calling is is tremendous. See, he's, he's called us, he's chosen us, not just to be his people, not just to be this one body, but to live a certain kind of life. We are called to this life by grace and by love and by sacrifice and by forgiveness and by the laying down of your life, His life. And we are to do the same. We are to interact with one another with grace and compassion and mercy and love and forgiveness. This is what defines us. Our our theology isn't worth the paper it's written on if this isn't us. We stand on the doctrines of grace. Let's start walking it out. I'll try to wrap up here and be quick. Beloved of the Lord. You're called. Called to love. Called to forgive. And what's the last part of the verse? You're called to be thankful. Thankful for all of that. Jesus redeemed your miserable flesh. And he dressed you in his righteousness. And he gave you a position of real power. You rule and reign with the Lord Jesus. You will judge angels. Try to get your mind around that. He brought us together in his sovereignty. He brought everybody that's in this room to this moment by love by forgiving us of our sins, and has called us in this moment to do the exact same thing, to forgive one another. And on our lips should be thanksgiving about our salvation and about our ability and desire to forgive one another. Brother, I am so thankful I get the opportunity to forgive you. Brother, I am so thankful that you forgave me. I am so thankful that we get to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling, that we get to walk in a way that resembles Jesus. And hallelujah, we are thankful. And maybe, just maybe, someone will see and be curious and will ask, how do you do that? Those people aren't lovable. And you love them anyway. 
I want to know how you do that. Well, let me have that road to Emmaus conversation with you, right? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the Prince of Peace. Let me tell you about the Gospel of Peace. Let me tell you about this body that joins together in love by love. And what is one of their primary functions? They forgive one another. Absolutely astonishing. We're called to be thankful. Raise your hands. Shout hallelujah. Full of gratitude. Full of praise. We should just be bubbling over. Truly our cup runs over, right? And hopefully is splashing onto the person next to you. That's the goal here. Peace with God. Peace with each other. And I'm well aware of the reality in which we live. But the promise to us is that we have peace in the presence of our enemies. Even they can't get to us. In Psalm 23, right? We're told, I'll prepare a table for you in the midst of your enemies. In the valley of the shadow of death. And surely we live in the shadow of the valley of death. The Lord says that he's going to take a moment. And he's going to prepare a meal for us. And we can put our sword down. And we can relax. And we can enjoy one another's fellowship. As we fellowship and commune with the Lord. And we can eat together. In peace. As we are being thankful... We are called to be thankful. I want to take you to the end here. In Colossians 3.17 it says, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 4.2 says, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is the will of God for you. You ever want to know what the will of God is? It's to give thanks in everything. Right? Everything gives us the opportunity to display and act in peace. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14, now thanks be unto God which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of the knowledge by us in every place. His knowledge by us in every place. Hebrews 13.15, we're going to get to the point here. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name.
What does that look like? Fruit of our lips. Has anybody read ahead in this passage in Colossians and know where it goes? That'll be for next time, though, right? Ezra chapter 3. I, I, I love this picture. It ties in with what Daniel was talking about this morning, that as the Lord is raising this house, this is what it looks like. It's living stones. It can never again be torn down by man's hands. Right? It is an eternal, everlasting temple of God. In Ezra's time, they were trying to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by by men's hands. And when they raised that first course, they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because He is good. For His mercy endureth forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. He is our peace. That foundation is laid in peace. It is a sure foundation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a delightful day this is in which we can gather together as your people. We can set aside those worldly troubles, those worldly fears, And we can be reminded that you are the Prince of Peace. That in your kingdom, peace remains forever. And we are thankful that you remind us to be long-suffering towards one another like you were long-suffering to us. That we would forgive one another as you forgave us. And that we would rejoice in loud hallelujahs for the salvation that has come to us and to your people. Father, let us praise you with our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And Lord, we pray by the power of your word and the ministry of your spirit that we would let your peace rule in our hearts. That we would be thankful. We pray all this in Jesus' name.